You are listening to the Nirvana Podcast, Season 2, Episode 6. Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters and Nirvana. Hello everybody and welcome to the Nirvana Podcast. My name is Sietse. And I'm Yiditja. And usually on this podcast, we talk about nothing but Nirvana. But today, things are a bit different because we're going to focus mainly on Foo Fighters. If you don't like Foo Fighters or aren't interested in them or whatever, please do keep on listening because we promise that we'll uh, give you some uh, fun information on them, on the link to Nirvana, obviously. Try to make it uh, as interesting as possible um, because... uh, we're still the Nirvana podcast and not the Foo Fighters podcast, obviously. So stick yeah, with us. That's right. Uh, we're going to search for as much Nirvana as we can find in the Foo Fighters career. Uh, spoiler, Dave Grohl. Well, that's not just a spoiler. It's almost like a running gag. I think there's <laughs> thousands of YouTube comments uh, under um, Foo Fighters yep. videos saying, oh, that looks like the drummer from Nirvana and vice versa. So it's, it's almost... It's almost a cliche to point it out. <laughs> exactly. There are probably still people who who realize that like for the first time and they're sort of tucked in between all of those ironic reactions on YouTube. <laughs> like every 100 reactions, there's like one genuine in between probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. And I can imagine if you're a millennial, you've probably heard Foo Fighters before you heard Nirvana. There's a good chance. Yeah, probably. So, yeah, and if you don't go back in history and, and check out uh, Nirvana yes, and look who's behind the drums yeah. without a beard, then, yeah, maybe uh, that's uh, that's possible. But um, uh, I, th- I think we should get going because we have a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. Because we're going to try to cram in the entire history and catalog of Foo Fighters uh, in one episode. So... Uh, I have a lot of notes and I have a lot of uh, <laughs> stuff lined up. So uh, let's get going. Of course, the most obvious starting point is uh, Foo Fighters' uh, debut album, the self-titled album that uh, was released in 1995. Mm-hmm. So that was a uh, little over a year after uh, Kurt died and Nirvana uh, ended. Grohl has said later in an interview that for a couple of months he wasn't sure that he wanted to do music anymore. Mm-hmm that it just was too hard for him uh, to make music. But yeah, at the end, I think he realized that he was making music long before he joined Nirvana. So why would he stop doing that after Nirvana? I mean, it, it was the one thing he always wanted to do, the one thing he knew, yeah, uh, exactly. the one thing he's good at. It's important to mention that he had already made his own demo tapes just before mm. and during the beginning of his period in Nirvana, he didn't start out as the drummer. Like he started out as a musician. And I think that that's also something I I can remember him saying in in interviews as well, that he did get some offers to join other bands as the drummer. And he eventually chose not to do that, like after Nirvana. And he chose not to do that because that was sort of, to him, it felt like that was Nirvana. I was their drummer. Um, and now I'm going to take uh, another step uh, in my musical career, I guess. 
which makes sense. I, I think there were rumors that he was uh, going to join Pearl Jam. Yeah. I think uh, Courtney Love helped spreading that rumor. I know he was invited by um, Tom Petty. And I think he played with them like a couple of times, but he never really joined the band. I think that Tom Petty actually sort of encouraged him when he heard that he he wrote his own songs as well and he sang, that he sort of encouraged him to like go and do that instead, um, instead yeah. of joining his band. So that's pretty cool. It is. And you're right in saying that um, he uh, already was recording his own songs. He actually released uh, a, a tape of those songs, although it, it wasn't a very high profile uh, release. And that also means that some of the songs that he did later turned into Foo Fighters songs. Yep. And Kurt Cobain had listened to some of them. Yeah. Uh, he's been asked about that quite a lot, especially uh, back in the day. Uh, and um, this is what he said about uh, that in an interview. Uh, he's yeah, because I mean he was a lyricist and he he had he definitely had a lot to offer with words, you know. Um, his his lyrics were really interesting, and, and he'd stay up at night for hours with a notebook, just writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, and not necessarily lyrics, just writing. And um, and I think a lot of the lyrics came from those journals where he'd just sort of pick lines out of the, these, you know, play on words here and there, and uh, so. And he enjoyed writing a lot. I I don't. I don't enjoy writing lyrics. Yeah, I mean, I played them tapes of stuff, and there were a few songs that, that Kurt liked a lot and wanted to turn into Nirvana songs. But for some reason, they just never did. Um, the song Alone and Easy Target, that song, Kurt really liked that song a lot. And uh, he liked the chorus a lot, and I think he wanted to make the chorus into something. And, um, and then there's a song called Exhausted, that apparently he actually never said to me but he liked the song a lot he just wanted to write his own lyrics to it and i think he he was afraid to ask me if we could do the song but with his lyrics which i would have said shit sure fine that'd be great yeah so those songs never became uh, nirvana songs but yeah, obviously they they could have um nice. you want to have a listen to that demo tape that They've made in 1992 songs yeah. he's talking about. Sounded like this.
Yeah, and that already pretty much uh, sounds like uh, the version that's on Foo Fighters' self-titled album, which kind of makes sense because um, on both occasions, Dave Grohl made it by himself. Yeah. So he's playing all the instruments. It, it is uh, the demo tape. Uh, I'm quite sure of that because it was officially released on one of the many uh, EPs that uh, Foo Fighters uh, released in the past <laughs> couple of years containing all sorts of demos and B-sides and rarities and, uh, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of those uh, things uh, available. So that was one of the songs that never became a Nirvana song, but, but could have been. Definitely. Another obvious connection between Nirvana and the first Foo Fighters album is the fact that uh, Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic worked on some of the songs together when they were still both in Nirvana. They had a couple of uh, recording sessions. Uh, Kurt Cobain wouldn't show up, so they decided to just, you know, put their time to good use and, and mostly work on songs that Dave was writing. And a lot of, the, a lot of those songs later became uh, Foo Fighters songs. So I think it's very logical to assume that uh, some of the bass parts on that first album were at least partly um, created by uh, by Chris, I think. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I mean, if they worked on that together, he he must have had some creative influence on that. That that's totally logical. And one of those songs is uh, "Big Me," which was one of the first singles that Foo Fighters uh, released, and I think was also. Uh, an important song for them because uh, it was quite successful. Yep. Partly because they made a funny uh, video uh, to go along with it. Yeah, that helped. <laughs> they were really good at that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it helped to really, really uh, put them on the map. I also have a demo version of uh, Big Me. Nice. On which you can hear the bass pretty good. It's not one of those recordings that Dave made with Chris. Unfortunately, I don't think they have ever been released of, or, or leaked or anything. But uh, this is probably more or less uh, what it sounded like. So if you listen to that first Foo Fighters record, do you hear a lot of Nirvana in there? I don't specifically hear Nirvana in it, but I hear sort of Nirvana influences on it more, I guess. Like um, a song like like Me, what you, you just played, especially in that demo version, like it has that slight Beatles sound in it. There's a bit of REM in it. In a couple of those other Foo Fighters songs, you can hear like grunge sound that's not specifically the nirvana kind of way of doing it but refers more to other bands from the same era um it fits in the whole <laughs> the whole scheme of things but it's different it it couldn't have been a nirvana album no i i, I think there are elements in there we already listened to uh 
a part of uh, Alone and Easy Target. Yeah. I think that, that guitar sound is a bit uh, Nirvana-y. Yep. That's uh, one also. of the most Nirvana-like songs, I think, on, on the album. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. So, uh, yeah, it makes sense that Kurt liked that one. And also things like repeating just one wo- one word or one sentence a couple of times. I mean, that wasn't exclusively done by Nirvana, but yeah, Kurt did that quite a lot. So I can imagine that they've got inspired by that. I thought, oh, well, it, <laughs> and I won't <laughs> yeah. have to write so many lyrics. So yeah. Yeah, he was, he was like he said, he was inspired by, by Kurt's lyric writing. That definitely makes sense. I think one of the big differences is that Dave's singing voice is is very different from, from Kurt's. But a similarity, I think, at the same time is the way they sort of throw themselves into every song. Like the whole point of attack at the first note of every song is sort of that that same same way that Kurt used to do that. I think mm. Dave does that as well. That's something that I, I really associate with Nirvana and that you can hear in, in the way that he approaches his songs. So I think that there is an influence there, definitely. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, on the other hand, we shouldn't focus too much on it. I remember that Dave once said in an interview that some people kind of resented him for, you know, um, that he kept on making music and that he kept on making music with loud guitars and lots of screaming. And then he said, well, that's what I've done all my life. I yeah. mean, that's, that's what I know. Uh, it's not like he was in a jazz band and then he <laughs> got into Nirvana. I mean, he was in punk bands before that so exactly and and let's not forget that like there was a whole scene already making music like that we've talked about a lot of other grunge bands punk bands rock bands that have that same sound so why wouldn't you be allowed to do that just because you were in one of those bands? I mean, a lot of other band members from other bands quit and, and formed new coalitions and, and, and wrote new music that sounded the same as well. But it's just obviously because of Kurt's death that Nirvana has got such a holy, <laughs> holy status, <laughs> which probably makes it, makes it harder for yourself to do something that's similar and, and not be called out for it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think he's a smart guy. He knew that some Nirvana fans would appreciate it and would give his new band a chance. And some of them would hate it no matter what he did. And I, I think that's the main reason why he never asked uh, uh, Chris to join yep. Foo Fighters. He knew that if he had done that, that people would say, ah, oh, you're taking over, you're trying to be yeah. a new Nirvana, but you're not, something like that. Yeah, exactly. And especially because obviously Dave wasn't in the band from the start. Um, you can imagine how really big fans who had been there from the beginning of the band would have resented that even more, like sort of the last guy to came, come in to, to sort of take over. He's a really, really smart guy. And I think he quite quickly realized about the, the, the sort of results that he could get, which is obviously why I think at first he didn't even want people to know that, that he was Foo Fighters, although that changed quickly, which makes sense. And I think also he, he said that 
for a couple of the new songs, he just wrote nonsense lyrics because he expected people to just dive deep into the lyrics like they'd done with Kurt and then try to, to find like secret messages about Kurt's death or his feelings surrounding that. So he, he wrote a couple of nonsense lyrics to just sort of <laughs> make sure that <laughs> nobody would, would find anything weird in there. And, well, you, you just played that interview in which he even says, like, I don't particularly like lyric writing. So it must have been really <laughs> nice for him to just think like, oh, I'll just write a bunch of nonsense and be done yeah, with it. Like fingernails cool. are pretty, fingernails are good. Exactly. <laughs> mm. But but still, of, of course, people were always going to try and find meaning in his words and yep. also a connection to Nirvana. And there's one very famous example from uh, I'll Stick Around, uh, which seemed to refer to uh, Courtney Love, which he uh, started out friendly with. But then, uh, yeah, later uh, they got into quite a fierce uh, argument. Let's check out that quote. been around uh, all the pawns uh, you gagged and bound hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah so I, and I, I don't think that they've even denied that those lines no. were at least partly uh based on courtney or directed at courtney or something like that yeah exactly one more obvious um connection between the first full fighters album and nirvana is the producer yep barry jones who recorded nirvana on a, on a couple of uh, occasions uh, never did a full album with them, but some uh, sessions that um, provided B sides and uh, and some some outtakes. Um, but I think Nirvana went to him because Dave already knew him. I think Dave brought Nirvana to the producer instead of uh, Nirvana bringing Dave to the producer. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I think so yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, and uh, it was recorded in uh, the Robert Lang Studios, and that's also where Nirvana did their last session, yeah. uh, on which occasion they uh, recorded "You Know You're Right," and also um, Chris and Dave worked on those uh, on those songs. Shall we do one more song that was? Uh, shall we listen to one more song that Dave and Chris worked on? Yeah, let's do it. But in this case, it's a song that never got officially released. Uh, it's called uh, Butterflies.
this is actually a nice combination between, I think, the Nirvana sound and the Foo Fighters sound. So Yeah. And uh, like we said, uh, Dave recorded that first album pretty much on his own. I think there's one um, guest uh, providing some guitar work on yeah. Exhausted, I think, or Ecstatic. I always mix up uh, the two of them. But um, yeah, he pretty much did it on his own. Um, there wasn't a band, actually. And we already we already said that he probably didn't want to ask uh, Chris because of the Nirvana legacy that would overshadow the project. But he did ask uh, Pat Smear to join the band, who was sort of a Nirvana member uh, in the final stage of their, uh, their career. I think he rightfully thought that the fans would accept at least that. Yeah, especially because Pat was never an official member of the band. So I think that that a a lot of people who weren't like who were Nirvana fans, but not really big fans wouldn't even have really realized who the guy was other than, oh, they have like an extra guitar player. So and he picked up the rhythm section uh, from another band. Yeah. Sunny Day Real Estate that made the first lineup of the Foo Fighters as a band. And I think they just started touring. Yeah. Playing songs like Butterflies we just heard because they didn't have that much uh, to choose from. And then uh, two years later, they released the second album, The Color and the Shape, uh, which also could have been called uh, Trying a Bit Too Hard, I think. <laughs> oh, I, I like that. I like that. I, I think you're spot on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a good album, I think. It's uh, a popular album amongst uh, yeah. fans. But it was their, their, like, their real international breakthrough, I think. They were already gaining popularity, but this album really helped pave the way for more success. So, yeah. Yeah. But the first album, well, c- kind of came easy to Dave, or at least so it seemed. Uh, this one a bit less. Uh, if you want to know a bit more about it, check out the documentary uh, Back and Forth about Foo Fighters, in which you can also hear the story about how Dave um, re-recorded all the drumming. Yeah, because that's another Nirvana connection uh, right here. Yes. <laughs> he kicked Treating out the drummer. Treating drummers <laughs> like shit. Yeah, without uh, telling the uh, the drummer of the band that exactly. he redid his part. So. <laughs> Obviously, uh, the drummer quit after that. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I think Dave said, "Yeah, you can still be a member of the band, but just for the for the live shows. Yeah, and I'll do the studio <laughs> work." But yeah, that that didn't really work. But there's there's another way where I think that they kind of tried too hard on this album. It's just sometimes in the in the production, it seemed to yeah. have a bit too much ideas crammed into one song, or a bit too much production. In it, yeah. I think. I think it's the exact opposite of the first album, where it was just Dave going into a studio and and playing everything and just like enjoying his music and and being like, okay, we'll see what happens. And I think in this album, they really tried to make an album. It's like, okay, we're now a band and we have this idea about how we should sound. And it should be, I think he also said like that they wanted to be more like pop rock kind of style. And then you get that overproduction on it and it's sort of... Yeah, and and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, I think. Uh, One of their best, and I think according to some people, their best song, uh, Everlong, is on there, which is absolutely great. And it, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. But on other occasions, I think they just don't really get to the core or, or of the of the song or something like that, or just sometimes it sounds a bit too too much made up. 
Yeah. Like they're missing something pure or spontaneous on it. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. Uh, I think a good uh, example of that is uh, February Stars, which Mm -hmm. is a song I don't really like the way it sounds on um, the color and the shape. Uh, I think that's one of the last songs that they did that was a bit older and that uh, Chris and Dave worked on. And apparently when they demoed it and were just kicking the song around, uh, Chris at one point played a harmonium on it. (laughs) Right. Nice. (laughs) You absolutely don't hear that in the uh, album version. No. But you can kind of get an idea of how it sounded on a live version that Foo Fighters later uh, released. So let's check out that version because <laughs> I think it's it's more listenable than the uh, album <laughs> yeah, version. Good. <laughs> not a harmonium but i think it's like a organ yeah underneath it but uh sounds like a, a regular organ but yeah you can sort of feel what it was when he did it with chris and i agree this is a a, a better version than the uh, the album version though it still sounds very 70s but like trying to be 70s instead of really being it and embodying it I think that's also what, like, the the thing that that you're trying to explain, like, the trying too hard bit. Yeah, uh, and I think uh, that you're spot on by saying that they were really trying to position themselves as a pop rock band instead of a grunge or a post grunge band. Although there's one song in particular that I think that sounds really grungy and uh, Nirvana-y, and uh, that's the song uh, "Enough Space." Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can recall that Dave once said in an interview that he came up with it and the tempo because he noticed that especially crowds in Europe like to bounce up and down (laughs) during concerts. (laughs) And so he started bouncing up and down and try to find like the perfect tempo to do that and then base a song on that. But I think it sounds uh, quite a lot like a radio-friendly unit shifter. Okay. I want to play the the two of them uh, uh, back to back uh, for enough space. I've uh, kind of uh, made my own mix uh, <laughs> with the separate tracks. And cool. for a radio friendly unit shifter, I use a, an instrumental demo version. Just the way the the main riff sounds and the way that the bass line basically is the same over and over and over again. Well, just, just yep. have a listen and see if you know what I mean. Also, get in the tone of the bass here. 
Yeah, it fits together very well. It's nice. There's definitely a, a big connection between the two that I hadn't really realized. So, yeah. Yeah, and, oh. and I'm not trying to say that it's it's a ripoff or, or anything, just that it's similar. Do you have any um, notes about, uh, about the songs on this album? Uh, I was thinking about this when you were saying that Dave was um, <laughs> thinking of people jumping up and down during concerts and stuff like that. It really feels that this album is is not just trying to get that sound right and get that band right, but is also thinking about the appeal to the public and where they want to position themselves. And I think that that gets even bigger with the next album. But... I find it a really interesting contrast with Nirvana where Kurt was weary of playing big gigs, was annoyed with having too many fans and having the feeling that that they become too radio friendly um, and too big um, and didn't really want to play to that audience anymore. And now here's Dave with his second Foo Fighters album really going for that large audience and trying to to make stuff that will appeal to a broad audience all around the world and that will establish them as well as a live band and having those videos, those music videos in which they're really... Um, like you can see they're like nice guys and, and fun guys and whatever, where Kurt would like hide his face. <laughs> it's such an interesting contrast. And I think that this is the album that, that started that positioning and the next album sort of f- fulfilled that, that idea. But uh, yeah, I've always found that really interesting that there's definitely a big contrast in, in what they, wanted from an audience and from their own position. And um, perhaps if Kurt hadn't died and Nirvana would have continued, that might have been something that could have broken them up in the future as well, if Kurt would have gone more into that niche audience. Uh, because you feel that apart from from Dave obviously trying to cater to that, that he also enjoys that. I mean, you wouldn't do that with your second album um, if you didn't like it. Um, And he likes playing live. He likes great big audiences. uh, He likes touring. So, yeah, 
it's a big, big contrast, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. This was the first step of Dave into becoming the Dave Grohl larger than life figure that we all <laughs> yep. know now. Yep. Um, he's not there just yet, I think, but uh, but it's obviously that that's the, uh, the direction that he's going in. One more thing you can maybe see that in is that he left off the title track of the album, which is one of the heavier and noisier songs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They did release it later, I think, like sort of as a as a bonus track or or something like that. But uh, the song, the color and the shape, isn't that accessible. I mean, just this beginning it could have been a Nirvana beginning of a song. It's a pretty cool song, uh, by the way. Yeah, it is. I've got one last thing to say about the color and the shape. And that's, of course, I'm still looking for clues in the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there are many. Um, people thought that my hero may be about Kurt <laughs> Cobain, <laughs> yeah. but I'm pretty sure it isn't. No. And they've also denied it, saying that he would never embarrass uh, Kurt by writing a song called... No. My hero (laughs) about him. It's just (laughs) way off. There's just one fragment that I always think, well, you can relate that to to him being in Nirvana and then starting his own band and and go his own way. And uh, that's the bridge uh, section in uh, Monkey Ranch Mm -hmm. when he is singing. One last thing before I quit. I never wanted any more than I could fit into my That can apply to a number of things, but I think it, it kind of makes sense to um, interpret it as he was always caged in the band where he couldn't, where he had to sit behind the drum kit and playing songs that somebody else wrote, and now he's free to do his own thing. On the other hand, most of this album, I think, is about his divorce yep. that he was going through at the time. Um, he described uh, the album himself as like... Uh, a therapy session. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah, but let, let's not forget that in therapy sessions, even if you're going in for one thing, uh, there's loads of other things that will pop up. Uh, <laughs> so even if you're writing a uh, an album about your divorce, um, it wouldn't be uncommon for other feelings and, and frustrations and memories to just pop up and, and get in there as well. Yeah, and thongs can be about several things at once. I yeah, mean, definitely. It's no problem. Yeah. Right, so um, the Foo Fighters released the color and the shape. Uh, the drummer quits. Uh, Pat Smear uh, uh, quits. So the Nirvana connection is kind of fading away, not yeah. just in the sound, but also in the, the people he's working uh, with. Uh, and in 1999, they released uh, the album Nothing Left to Lose, which they made as a, a three-part band. Just uh, three members, just as 
Nirvana, maybe you've heard <laughs> of him uh, on their uh, on their peak, and most of the time they were just uh, um, a three part uh, band. And like I said, they uh, they released uh, Nothing Left to Lose, which I think is one of their most popular uh, and best received albums. Yeah. Which personally, I don't really get. I don't like it, the album very much. Do you? No, it's it's definitely not my favorite either. Um, I think one of the reasons that it did so well was. It has an even softer sound, I guess, than than the color and the shape. So um, more commercial. Um, I think they went to a different record label, a larger one, um, who went all out in promoting the album. So I guess it sort of rode on that wave of them becoming more and more popular and then thanks to the the bigger label cashing it in. Um, obviously, I mean, Learn to Fly is on this album, which was a really big hit. They really did so much touring that that also helped the sales. But this is not an album that I particularly enjoy. Personally, I think it's one of their weakest, but uh, I know that that's not the general uh, opinion. Um, there is an interesting Nirvana connection once again, um, because uh, it was uh, produced by uh, Adam Casper, who also did the mixing for most of the songs. And he also uh, he also worked with Nirvana recording uh, You Know You're Right, uh, for instance. Yeah. Uh, and three songs were mixed by Mr. Andy Wallace. And Andy Wallace is the guy who mixed uh, Nevermind. And later Kurt couldn't stop complaining about how much <laughs> he hated those mixes because yeah. they were too commercial. <laughs> but uh, I think Kurt was a bit overreacting uh, uh, to it. Um, but it shows that Dave at least uh, was pretty happy with those mixes because otherwise he wouldn't have asked... Uh, uh, Andy Wallace to mix some uh, of his songs as well. <laughs> he probably thought like, this is the guy we need to make us sound more commercial in some of the songs. So yeah, yeah. makes sense. And like you said, uh, the most successful song uh, on the album is uh, Learn to Fly. Uh, again, a song that I personally don't really like. Actually, I get a bit annoyed if I hear it on the radio. It's too mid-tempo, yeah. Yeah, neither here or there uh, for me. But it's a, it's a big success. But I found on the internet, thank you, internet, <laughs> a quite different uh, mix uh, for this song. And uh, we're going to check that out. Yeah, I think that mashup worked really well on the verses, not so much on the chorus, but uh, it's uh, it's well done. It's a uh, it's an improvement on Learn to Fly, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so too. Yeah, no, Learn to Fly is it's a very well written song. 
Um, but I have the same as you. It's a bit too radio friendly, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, yeah. What I was, I was just wondering while listening to this. Can you remember when you got into Foo Fighters, heard them the first time because you were later in Nirvana, uh, partly because of your age? Did you know Foo Fighters before Nirvana, or can you remember any of that? No, I, I, I think the first album was already out when I got into Nirvana, so it was kind of always was there mm -hmm. but to me it, it still was Dave Grohl's new band right right so you yeah. you still had the Nirvana angle going into Foo Fighters yeah yeah cool. absolutely yeah 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 how was that for you yeah well I uh, <laughs> I was there when he died and when Foo Fighters started so <laughs> yeah no I can I can remember that um like I bought the single of of this is a call um, I, the, the very first single for people who don't know, because we never mentioned it, but, um, which I was totally blown away by, uh, still am. I love that song. It's just, um, like it starts and you're like, whoa, what's happening here? Um, and that was what I felt when it was released. And then I sort of started losing interest. I think I saw them live twice. So <laughs> I still had an interest in them, but. Yeah, I think it was different because it wasn't the kind of the style of music that I was normally into. So I'd sort of like enjoy it as a live band and sort of follow it a bit. But that, whoa, what's this feeling of this is a call? I I never had that again, unfortunately. I, I can see why. I think I've already uh, I've also seen them live, I think just once a couple of years ago. And they're an incredible live band and they've really developed himself into a legendary front man reaching every single person in in massive stadiums yeah. so that's that's awesome and the great thing is that they on on each album there's either a big hit or a song that grows in time yep. and becomes like an, an anthem or a classic uh, that happened to them quite a lot um, everlong wasn't such a big big hit i think in the beginning um Times Like These, which is on the next album we're going to talk about. I don't think that was a big hit either when it no. was released. But now it's a song that he played on the inauguration of the president. I mean, it's amazing. I have, I have a lot of respect for that. I think it's really, yeah, it's really quite an achievement. Yeah. But still, I think they never really made uh, an album that's good from start to finish and that keeps me interested for some reason but there are highlights on every album and yeah if you put them together in a live show you have a great you have yeah. a great show so in uh, 2002 uh, they re released another album called one by one again uh, adam casper uh, did the production uh, uh, for that Another link is that uh, Anton Corbijn uh, did uh, some photography for it. Yeah. So we both have a Nirvana connection and a, a, a Netherlands connection. Yes. So that's uh, double points <laughs> for that. If I'm not mistaken, that album also uh, features uh, your favorite Foo Fighters song, right? Yes. This is also, I think, one of the albums I enjoy most. It works as an album. It's a... Uh, Heavier sound, lyrics are better, um, and yes, it has uh, it has definitely my uh, my favorite Foo Fighters song of all time on it. Well, let's check it out, and then you can ex explain why it's your favorite Foo Fighters song.
So please explain yourself. <laughs> I have a love for songs that are like really empty sounding, I guess, um, like this one does. Um, and I really like, I, I like the melody. Um, it's just basic good songwriting, I think. You get the feeling that, that something's gonna like happen or burst out or burst open, but it doesn't. And, and that's what I, I think I enjoy most in this song. Um, also, I think the lyrics are really good. Um, it's, it's sort of a really weird, creepy love song, I'd say, <laughs> hmm. to me at least. I'm really happy I found it again because I'd actually lost this song <laughs> for as far as you can lose a song. Over 10 years ago or something like that, I did a one-off gig with a friend of mine, uh, Jochum, you know him as well. Uh, we did a, a couple of songs um, where I made like new lyrics on them in Dutch, not specifically like uh, translations, but sometimes new lyrics. And we tried out a couple of songs and, and decided on, on three of them. We did an Amy Mann song and we did a Fiona Apple song and we did this one. And over the last two years or something like that, I was like, that was a good song, but I can't remember <laughs> what it was because I had like, I knew the melody and I had my own lyrics that I, that I wrote in Dutch were in my head, but I couldn't remember the original English lyrics for it. And because I don't own this album, I had no idea anymore that it was a Foo Fighters song. And then when we were preparing for this episode of the podcast, I was like playing this album. And I was like, oh my God, this is the song that I've been <laughs> like <laughs> searching for for a couple of years, not remembering who the band was. So I'm like really happy to, to have refound this song because it's so good great and do you have a recording of your dutch version of the song there, there should be one somewhere i think jochem has it so well i can i can dig it up somewhere yeah if you can dig it up i'll uh, i'll edit it in uh, edit it in uh, at the end of this podcast cool so dear listeners perhaps there's going to be something extra after <laughs> after we're uh, we're all said and done and perhaps there's not so just we, we don't know yet. Um, yeah, and and can I just surprise. add to that, that I never realized until I, I found this song again, is that actually Brian May of Queen is playing the guitars on it, which is yep. pretty cool. And, and once you know it, you can hear it. It's like, oh yeah, of course, that's like the Brian May sound, but I never read the liner notes, I guess. So <laughs> there we can make the connection to Nirvana because... Yes. Uh, first of all, um, uh, Kurt listened to Queen when he was young. Yep. He never spoke much about them, but uh, but he did. Um, and also, uh, after uh, Chris got hurt when he threw up his uh, bass guitar and got smashed by it in the head at uh, their uh, famous MTV uh, performance, afterwards, he uh, was found backstage uh, chatting with Mr. Brian May. Yeah. So, Apparently, uh, they knew each other. So, yeah, there's a bit of a connection there. And also, of course, uh, Kurt mentions uh, Freddie Mercury in his suicide note. Yep. Yep. So, yeah, there are connections between uh, Nirvana and Queen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
and but there's a stronger connection between Foo Fighters and Queen because um, yeah they actually work together I think Foo Fighters sometimes play Queen songs oh wait Nirvana did sort of did uh, We Will Rock We you Will Rock You yeah <laughs> in Brazil I think <laughs> yeah but I think every band has done We Will Rock You at one stage yeah, in their career. Yeah, but not quite like Nirvana did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that yeah but like disastrous. you said, there's a there's a bigger connection, I guess, between Foo Fighters and, and, and Queen. Also, again, that whole big stadium rock band feeling, I think they share a lot of that sort of thing between them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And by the way, um, Tired of You is one of the few songs that were from the first attempt of Foo Fighters to record this album. Yeah. Because the story there is that they tried to do the album, but it just wouldn't work. And they threw out all of their uh, tapes and then started over again in Dave's basement. Well, he always says, yeah, we just did it in my basement. But of course, he has a... Recording studio. Exactly. Yeah, he has a... Professional recording studio yeah. in his basement, so it's not as cool and lo-fi uh, as it sounds. Um, but those um, demos, they're called the Million Dollar Demos, I think. Yeah. Because uh, supposedly they cost over a million dollars and they never used it. Most of them got released uh, eventually, or at least uh, got leaked uh, eventually. Yeah. But uh, Tired of You is one of the original uh, recordings. Yeah, so, uh, both Dave and me know what good music is, so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we have to keep going because there are still a lot of albums and songs yeah. to cover. And uh, we decided that we didn't want to make this a two-part podcast. So uh, we're go. going to skip to 2005 to the album In Your Honor, um, which is like a double album with one part heavy rock music and one part um, more silent acoustic songs. Yeah, I never got that. I mean, no, I, me I got the concept, but uh, no, it, it doesn't doesn't really work for me. You get yeah. like two meh albums in one instead of one good one. Yeah, but I do want to point out one song, which is called A Friend of a Friend. Uh, it's one of those older Dave Grohl songs. I think he already uh, demoed it uh, back in the day when he was living with Kurt and they were just, you know, being poor, waiting to... Uh, breakthrough yeah. and making music and um yeah he dug it up again and and recorded it uh, for this album and i think this is one of the few songs that actually is partly about kurt and their lives uh, back in the time and i think you can hear it uh, pretty clear in some of those lines um so uh, let's have a listen to that and then we're gonna move over to the next album he needs a quiet to keep him in It's just a quiet room And he's there He plays an old guitar With the corn found by the phone It was his friend's guitar This could have also been a Nirvana song. And this is a Nirvana song. Mm -hmm. 
We couldn't make this episode without playing this song because no. it's the one song that's both a Nirvana song and a Foo Fighters song. Yep. So uh, I think when uh, Foo Fighters started off, a lot of people were requesting this song because yep. it was the only Dave Grohl song that they knew. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure if he played it in the beginning. I, I don't I, think so. I think not because he really wanted to avoid the Nirvana connection. But eventually I think he felt, well, it's it's my song. I wrote it. If I want to play it, I'm going to play it. And uh, yeah, so now it's also officially a, a Foo Fighters song. Or you could say that Foo Fighters covered Nirvana. That's something <laughs> for lawyers to figure out, I suppose. Yeah, it mainly feels like a Dave Grohl song. But I think we talked about that before, how Marigold is a sort of an exception in the whole back catalog of, of Nirvana. So I, I'm I'm happy that he did a recording with Foo Fighters. I think it's only right to have done that. Yeah, of course. And if you want to listen to at least four other versions of uh, Marigold, <laughs> just uh, skip back a few episodes. I think we covered it when we did the non-album tracks from the um, Utero era. Yep. So uh, you can uh, you can find it there. Meanwhile, we're going to continue our journey through the Foo Fighters uh, catalog. And that brings us to 2007 with the album Echoes, Silence, Patience and Grace which has my favorite Foo Fighters song on it. Ah, which is that? Well, it's a pretty obvious choice, I think. It's the first uh, song of the album yeah, and one great. of their best-known songs uh, uh, called The Pretender. Yeah, I, I don't have a story to go along with it. It's just that I think it's a really awesome song. I totally agree. I, I, I mean, I was just mentioning that how I enjoyed This Is A Call. This is, is, I think, the other song that has that same kind of urge in it that is not just a great, like, stadium filler, but also has that sort of that feeling inside of, like, I need to... I need to tell this story now, which is which is awesome. Um, yeah, and it's really well written. It's clever. It it keeps me interested at at, at all at every second. And well, like I just said, a lot of songs uh, of the Foo Fighters, I just you know I get bored halfway through them. Yep. Don't know why. This one definitely uh, yeah has something special that I'm missing in too many Foo Fighters songs. But this is one of those really really good ones like those diamonds that are also in there so yeah, yeah it also feels a bit more grungy again it's sort of more back to to those roots uh, the whole album i think but especially this song is is less stadium rock and more raw grunge i guess yeah well i, I think it's a bit too complex to be like that's, a true. Typical grunge that's true song. yeah it's yeah yeah but uh yeah i think it's really good 
Um, it doesn't really have a Nirvana connection. Another song on this album does, sort of. The song uh, Let It Die. Of course, when Dave has a song called Let It Die, people immediately think of Kurt, but not convinced that's that's what the song is about. But I do know that um, that's the song where uh, Pat Smear made his comeback into the band. Yeah. Uh, it was more or less like... Um, a guest appearance, I think, at that point. Yeah. A couple of years later, he would permanently rejoin the band. And uh, that's when they uh, decided to uh, record their next album called Wasting Light. And I think there the Nirvana connection is really coming back in. First of all, because it was uh, produced by Butch Fig, the producer who famously uh, also uh, recorded uh, Nevermind with Nirvana. Pet Smear... Uh, like I said, uh, return to the band. So uh, that's an obvious connection. And also, finally, there he we is. have, <laughs> a, again, uh, a cooperation between Dave and Chris. Let's uh, check out what the band and Butch Fake have uh, to say about it themselves. Hey, Chris. Hello. We had Chris Novoselic come in and play bass on I Should Have Known. That was a very special moment because I had not been in the same room with Dave and Chris since we finished Nevermind. Is that back and forth twice? Then it does the turnaround chord. Yeah, it goes, it goes D sharp G, D sharp G, F, C. And, and it, it goes back and it in. D sharp over. G, D sharp. Oh, yeah. it's like a six chord. Yavor. How was the tone? I th sounds gnarly. There, it's done. It's <laughs> <laughs> all you get. I was not surprised that Dave asked Chris to play on the record. I was surprised it hadn't happened any other time in the last 16 years. You never realize how important the bass sound is to the sound of a band until you put it in another band and go, oh, there it is. I think what Chris played on the song was the absolute perfect thing for him to do on a Foo Fighters record. I think he didn't just play bass, he also played some accordion on, on, on the song, I think. Yeah, apparently he, uh, he did, so uh, there's a bit more to it than just the bass. It may be a coincidence, but I think Wasting Light is one of the best uh, Foo Fighters records. Yeah, I agree. Maybe because of the stronger Nirvana connection or just because of my taste. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a good album, I think. Yeah, it has a, a strong connected feeling. All the songs sound like they really fit together and, and it's a proper album um, instead of just a collection of songs that might also have to do with the production by Butchvig, who is who is definitely an album kind of guy. So that yeah, might and fun. they uh, recorded the album literally on tape. Yep. So they didn't use any uh, technical equipment to to make the album. No. So 
yeah, I think the idea was that that would really push them forward because they couldn't easily fix mistakes as you yeah. can do uh, when you're recording uh, digitally. So um, yeah, maybe that has something to do with it. Also around this time, I think uh, Dave uh, bought the mixing board from the Sound City Studios and made a documentary about uh, the studio and the, and the mixing board. Do you know if they actually used that board for this record? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. I haven't haven't read about that. So maybe he just bought it afterwards <laughs> when they finished the record already. Not sure. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. No, me neither. I, I, I think they didn't use it yet. But sorry, listeners, you're going to have to look that up uh, yourself. <laughs> um, but I do think that it shows that Dave was becoming more interested in his past. Yeah. And also, you know, seeing himself as a part of American rock history through Nirvana, but also by uh, being his own person and his own, having his own band and his own songs. And uh, well, of course, he worked together with, with a lot of famous musicians, friend of his, but also like really big names. And um, yeah, so I think he was really interested in that and uh, yeah, used that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Developing himself as a filmmaker, I think the uh, Sound City documentary is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so the cool thing is that he uh, reconnected with uh, with uh, Chris uh, again. Yeah, and they they played live together. I think once before. Um, I tried to find um, a proper recording of it, but I don't think it's there. Like. Um, Chris uh, came on stage uh, for Foo Fighters uh, live show in 1997 to just play along with two songs. And apparently he did like backing vocals on a song that was later released on the one by one special edition. I don't know when that one was recorded. I don't know if you know about that. It would have uh, made sense if that was in the same period of this one. But yeah, no, I don't know. And I also don't know why would you have... Chris do backing vocals. <laughs> exactly. That that was exactly what I was thinking. I probably they were just in the studio and and he came along to have a coffee and and they had a bit of fun, I think. I think it goes to show that, just like Butchvig said in in the audio that you just played, that they had stayed friends and in touch and and sort of they were in each other's lives already. So it's good to see them popping up with each other's work every now and then to... uh, Yeah, yeah. they they obviously stayed in touch, uh, stayed friendly. They had to take care of the Nirvana legacy uh, together, of course, and, you know, maybe... uh, the fact that they were having troubles with Courtney Love about that brought them together and yeah. made them stick together uh, uh, closely. Uh, I don't know. Um, but um, yeah, Chris pops up every now and then. Yep. I have a recording of uh, Chris showing up at a Foo Fighters uh, concert in uh, 2018. And they did not play a Nirvana original song, but uh, I'm sure it's a song that every Nirvana fan knows. And tonight would not be complete 
unless my good old friend came out and did a song with us. Ladies and gentlemen, big ass stadium. Chris Avicel is gonna come out and play something. Dave's so good at introductions and speeches <laughs> like these. You haven't aged today. Yes, he has. <laughs> Is it also? We haven't done this song together in a long time. It's called Molly's Lips. It sounds like this. nice i really like the fact that they sort of stay away from the real nirvana catalog and they've done that up until like the official nirvana performances like uh, hall of fame and stuff like that when they're like really as the nirvana legacy um but other than that they've just stayed away from it which i think is this is such a cool song choice to do It's yeah really i think nice. so too yeah i like to think that kurt would have been more honored if they played uh, a Vaseline song yeah. than if they played an actual Nirvana song, I think. Definitely. Because he loved the Vaseline uh, so much. And he, you're totally right. Uh, there's a very clear distinction between uh, Nirvana reunion, mm -hmm. because then Dave is drumming. And when it's a Foo Fighters concert, a guest, yeah. because then Dave is playing the guitar and singing. Yeah. So if you're uh, w wondering uh, what you're looking at, just uh, check for that. <laughs> and, uh, And you'll be fine. Although Foo Fighters didn't stay away from the Nirvana catalog 100%. Let me uh, play you a small clip. I think it's from the uh, Sonic Highways um, series. At one point, uh, the band is uh, rehearsing and they are playing uh, like the intros of very, very famous uh, songs and, you know, joking around with it like, oh, uh, I, I just came up with something, but it's it's probably nothing. And then this happened. Last night I was fucking fooling around with this thing. It goes. But I don't know though. Yeah, no, I don't think that one's gonna work. B side, B side. That was happy. Fuck, we nailed it. Our next Oh my god, we gotta do Smells Like Teen Spirit. It'd be so awesome. Just yeah. open the show with it. <laughs> What? <laughs> I'm like San Paulo. <laughs>
What were we doing earlier? We have, we have our own song today, don't we? Exactly. We have nowhere else to go from there. Fucking. Yeah, and then of course, uh, people on YouTube um, created all sorts of clickbait around this, like, oh, Foo Fighters covering smells like Teen Spirit. <laughs> exactly. That's how I found it, at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it's saying something that Dave is saying at the end, like, oh, I'm getting sweaty. This is weird. Uh, yeah. He knows that he, it's yeah. not what he wants to do. No, and it's, it's like the... The, the joke is really nice. And then, like, when it, when it becomes too big, it's sort of, yeah, he just wants to step away from it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, all done. Yeah. Uh, but it's nice to have, like, yeah. a little trinket. Um, and like I said, this was taken from uh, the series uh, Sonic Highways, which is a bit of a very ambitious project by Dave, I think. Yeah, it was not just... Foo Fighters recording an album, but at the same time, uh, at the same time, they were making a documentary series about musical history of different cities all across America. And I think he got a bit carried away and overambitious. Yeah, the, the record yeah. Sonic Highways isn't that good. And to be quite honest, I didn't really like the series as well. Another fun fact just to make this whole episode not about Dave Grohl, but about me, is uh, that I didn't just, like, did a Dutch version of a Foo Fighters song. I actually did the Dutch subtitles for Sonic Highways. Oh, really? Back in those days, I, I did a bit of subtitling uh, on the side. <laughs> so I uh, subtitled the whole Sonic Highway, so I saw it, like, before it came out, uh, which was fun. But enough about me. Back to Dave Grohl. <laughs> Did you enjoy subtitling it? Yeah, I did, but I enjoyed it because when you subtitle something, um, you're you're watching something with more um, in more detail than you would if you were just watching it on TV, and that was nice for this documentary series to just really get into it. I still really like the idea of of visiting different uh, studios in different cities um, because you were already mentioning like Dave became more and more interested in that kind of thing and, and recording and recording studios and stuff like that. Um, and I think it's, it's really interesting from a musical point of view to focus on like, this is one of the biggest studios in this city and it has created a specific sound. But the combination of then also recording a song with Foo Fighters in every studio, in every city, and trying to get influenced by that sound, that just didn't work. Because in the end, it's it's still Foo Fighters. And you can, like, invite Dolly Parton, but then it's, yeah, 
Foo Fighters and Dolly Parton, and you can say like, okay, we're now being influenced by another sound, but that's not really how it works for a band. I mean, no. it would have been more interesting if it was just Dave Grohl visiting all of those cities and studios and just have that nerdy music talk. That would be good. And then having musicians from that area as well and talking to them and maybe doing a cover or whatever, something like that. But in this case, it's sort of you sort of lose interest as soon as <laughs> they try to record a song. And then when you listen to the album, it's it's like, yeah, but it's sort of it's a Foo Fighters album, but it sometimes sounds a bit weird and I don't know why. <laughs> it's it's too many things at once. I mean, either record a really good album or make a doc documentary series. That's just fine. But, you know, he's also trying to tell like the tale of American music history, but also a lot of his own personal yep. connections to cities and peoples uh, and people in there. Of course, um, it does provide another Nirvana connection because he also uh, records a song in uh, uh, Steve Albini's um, studio, uh, yep. Something From Nothing is the song, but you, you don't really hear the Steve Albini sound in there. No, because it's it's the it's about the Chicago sound, which isn't specifically the Steve Albini sound. The Chicago sound is is not exactly the same. It's a different kind of yeah. And then he does a sh an episode and a song in in Seattle, but then he works together with the guy from uh, Death Cab for Cutie. And I think is that really like the best <laughs> exactly representative of Seattle? I mean, <laughs> no, and it's it's definitely not what you'd expect and. On the one hand, you could think like, oh, it's nice that he's not going for the obvi obvious. But I mean, it's Dave Grohl in Seattle. I want the obvious. <laughs> of course. Go for it, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's uh, that's Sonic Highways. Uh, three years later, uh, they released uh, Concrete and Gold. And I really couldn't find any Nirvana connection there. Nope. They're nope. collaborating with a lot of people like like... Justin Timberlake and Paul McCartney. Well, the only connection there is that Kurt said that he hated Paul McCartney and wanted to kill him. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, we're kind of going to skip over that. Yeah. And after that, they started to release a couple of uh, EPs, like I said, with uh, all sorts of uh, outtakes and, and stuff. On one of those, there's uh, a cover song that does have a far-fetched Nirvana... <laughs> connection. Yeah, I just wanted to, to throw it in there real quickly. And then uh, we're going to move on to Nirvana's latest uh, album uh, that just came out last week, Medicine at Midnight. But first, uh, have a listen to this. And here's the quiz question. What does that song have to do with Nirvana? I don't know. No. Well, it's it's a, a cover from yep. a song by a Creedence Clearwater Revival. Yep. And before they started Nirvana, <gasps> yeah. Kurt and Chris had like this weird idea to start a, a Creedence Clearwater yeah. Revival cover band. 
because they thought that they could make money that way. Yeah, yeah. So totally I just true. <laughs> couldn't let that one go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good catch. I I and, I totally forgot about I know, that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, last week um, the new Foo Fighters album uh, came out. Yep. So we had to dig for uh, Nirvana connections uh, there uh, as well. Um, it wasn't an easy thing to do. I I, I only have two of those uh, in my notes. Did you find any? I found a connection to something that we discussed in the previous episode where Kurt was dismissing one of his songs because he thought it sounded like Bon Jovi. <laughs> to me, this new Foo Fighters album, well, I won't say it all sounds like Bon Jovi, but yeah, <laughs> it has mm. a strong 80s Bon Jovi vibe. Let's let's leave it at that. So that was the connection I found. Well, I found a connection in the same vein. Um, I read that Dave said that it was sort of um, inspired by David Bowie's uh, Let's Dance album. Okay. And yeah. of course, Nirvana also covered a David Bowie song. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. from the Let's nice. Dance album, but still. Nice, nice connection. And apart from that, um, well, I already sent you a text message uh, earlier today to give you sort of a assignment. Yeah. Um, I also read that Dave has said that on this album, there's a song based on a guitar riff that he had been kicking around for 25 years. Yeah. And he finally made a song around it. At first, I did not know uh, which song he was talking about. Um, so I asked you, well... Maybe if you uh, have another listen at the album uh, and you can guess what song it is. But by some uh, Googling around, I did find out what song it is. But of course, I first want to know your guess. <laughs> I re-listened to the songs with that in the back of my mind. And my guess would be that it's the song Holding Poison. But I might be wrong. But that would be my guess. Uh, you're wrong. It's the song Cloud Spotter. Yeah. When you when you listen to it like that, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that is going to be uh, the final uh, song we're going to uh, listen to. Uh, meanwhile, you can uh, check your notes if there's anything more we have to add to this or if we're going to say our uh, goodbyes uh, after listening to uh, that 25-year-old guitar riff that Dave wrote when he was still that guy from Nirvana. <laughs> That was it. I think we made our way through uh, 25 uh, years of uh, Foo Fighters. Anything uh, you want to add to what we already uh, discussed and said about it? No, I, uh, I'm, I'm proud of us uh, having uh, done this in uh, an hour and a half. And uh, I'm sure we've uh, left out a lot and um, missed a couple of obvious connections, maybe. 
Um, so if we've missed something, do let us know. We can uh, come back to it and, uh, and, and talk about it. I've enjoyed getting back into the Foo Fighters catalog and, uh, and finding these connections. And hopefully uh, our listeners have been uh, enjoying that as well. If you as a listener want to let us know uh, what your thoughts are um, about Foo Fighters and the connection with uh, Nirvana, please send an email to sh- uh, Sherwoodpodcast at gmail.com. I almost uh, <laughs> said it wrong myself because it's such a weird uh, email address. Sherwoodpodcast at gmail.com or uh, go and find us on Facebook and then you can search for uh, Nirvana Podcast or just type in facebook.com slash Nirvana Podcast. Also, uh, don't forget that we would really appreciate it if you would share the show on your social media feed or just uh, tell your friends about it or um, do whatever you can uh, to uh, help us reach more people who might be interested. So um, that's uh, that's it. I want to thank you, of course, for uh, podcasting with me yet again. And thank you for having me and, and finding a song that I like. <laughs> Bonus. <laughs> You're very welcome, of course. Uh, and to all of our listeners, I'd like to say uh, thanks for listening. And till next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. This is Sietse. I've got some great news. Yaditya managed to dig up a recording of her Dutch version of Tired of You. And... We can have a listen to it, but I promised her to tell everybody that it's a first rehearsal that you're listening to. So it's not the final version, but uh, yeah, here's a snippet of it.